Hey there, it's Raleigh. I want to catch you before this episode to tell you about our new and improved bonus podcast, More Mercy. Each week, I break down a MercyCast episode and show how it not only intersects with Scripture, but how it impacts our daily lives. This short devotional episode is only $3 a month, which is like $4 less than a cup of coffee at the Mermaid Place. To access it, all you have to do is click the link in the show notes. Remember, no matter what you're going through, there's always more mercy. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I am your host, Raleigh Sadler. Today, I want to talk about trauma. Trauma can feel overwhelming. It's easy to feel that we can never overcome the pain and the effects of what we've experienced. It's like no matter what we do, it's there. We go to sleep, it's on our minds. We wake up in the morning, and it's waiting for us before we can even get into the shower. We often feel that we can't escape the reality of our pain and trauma. In February 2005, Carrie Rawson answered an unexpected knock at her door in Michigan. It was the FBI notifying her that her father, Dennis Rader, was the long-sought serial killer from Wichita, Kansas, called BTK. Carrie was notified that her father was wanted for 10 murders spanning three decades. Most of that took place before she was born. At the age of 26, facing the worst days of her life, she had to decide to choose life. She had to learn to live under the glare of international headlines and pick up the pieces of her life while questioning every moment of her life up until then and questioning her faith in God in the process. Carrie Rawson is the New York Times bestselling author of A Serial Killer's Daughter and the forthcoming book, Breaking Free, Overcoming the Trauma of My Serial Killer Father. She is the daughter of Dennis Rader, also known as the serial killer BTK, and is a passionate advocate for victims of abuse, crime, and trauma. She has turned her experiences into opportunities to write and speak about her journey of hope, healing, faith, and forgiveness. She now resides in Florida with her two children. Carrie, thanks for joining me on the MercyCast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So, Carrie, this FBI agent shows up at your door. You weren't expecting this. You weren't ready for this. And you had no idea what this person was going to say. How did this meeting change the trajectory of your life? It's, it changed everything for me. So I was substitute teaching. I was 26. I'd been married 18 months to my high school sweetheart. We were conservative Christians. We had met kind of like through Campus Crusade for Christ. And we got married two months out of college. And we had been living outside of Detroit for like a year and a half. So we were just bonding and working and, you know, making plans for the future like normal average life. We didn't have any family in Michigan. We hadn't found a church yet, so it was just us. And I was substitute teaching, but I was home that day. I was still in my pajamas. And like this guy knocked on my door and and he said he was the FBI and he needed to question me. And I was like, I didn't even want to let him in. Like my dad had always said, don't let people in the door, make them prove to you who they are. So I made him show me his badge and didn't want to let him in. I still didn't believe he was FBI. He didn't even have a gun. He just was like an accountant, like with a legal pad. And he comes into my kitchen and he's just standing there. And he goes, have you heard of BTK? And 
Like I had heard of that they were looking for a serial killer in Wichita. And so I thought something had happened to my dad's mom. Like my grandma had died, had been murdered. And so I'm like, is my grandma okay? She's been murdered. He's like, no, she's fine. And then, and then he just drops it like, boom, your dad is BTK. There was like, no, we think or nothing. It was just this like, boom, your dad is BTK. In that moment, were you just overwhelmed? You're hearing this person say in no uncertain terms that your father is a serial killer. And did you believe him right away? Did you push back? I went into shock, physical shock. I started shaking. So I was shaking for five days. Like literally Mm. my hands were like shaky. I almost passed out. I had to grab the wall behind me. And then that's like that, like that, the trauma split, like my body literally just split in two. It was just like, it literally like somebody just ripped me apart. It's like your whole innards and your brain, everything like shares at that moment, right? I have CPTSD. So I have like severe PTSD and like, it's complex as the sea, but it's like at that moment, it's like a really bright red, black flash. And like, that's the worst of it is right there. I had what I told you in detail stuck in my head from before he came to my door until like about, he was there the whole time for about two hours. I had a, I had a loop. It was like a red and black loop flashing in my head for two years. And I thought I was going insane because I, I would go replay it and I would get stuck there. And so when I went to trauma therapy in 07, I walked in. I actually went because I was at church and I needed help. And, and she was on the list of, of mental health resources. And she was a Christian counselor too, but she had the trauma background. And I went in there and I go, I think I'm going insane. And she's like, no. And she got the DSM out and she's like, read PTSD. And she's like, you have PTSD. So we worked through that first flash, but I still live with PTSD today. And you describe this as a flash, this red flash that replayed over and over, like on a loop. You start going into counseling. Did you start experiencing that becoming alleviated quickly or was it incrementally? Is it still a process? So with the, with the PTSD itself, we caught that we got a hold of that, that biggest loop in that first round in 07. And then I didn't go back until 15. So I dragged my butt back in after I had become public in 14 with my story and all this stuff got upended. And uh, I'm starting to deal with stuff that like for the first time reading about his crimes and all this stuff was like all messed up. I wasn't sleeping. I was even seeing crime victims at night in my head, like crime scenes in my head of my father's. And I would this, I mean, we're 10 years out, right? We're 10 years out. I'm a mom of two kids, little kids. I'm like volunteering at church with with Bible study, mom's leading. I'm speaking from a stage about all of this stuff. I'm international news and I can't sleep at night. And so I go back into therapy, the same woman, and she's like, she's like, good to see you. And then she's <laughs> like, what you did was... Because I only, I had only spent six months with her, right? I spent six months with her eight years before that. And then I said, oh, I'm all good. And I went and had babies. Not good, right? I had terrible postpartum, terrible depression, anxiety, you know, even like suicidal ideation, all of this stuff going on while I'm trying to stay married. 
and volunteer at church like 30 hours a week. And then I became international news and I take all this into her. She's like, whoa, 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 stop. <laughs> and she's like, what you did was you unpacked all of this stuff, 40 some years of stuff. And she's like, it's all a mess. And she's like, now I got to go grab all of it and put it in place for the first time. And she goes, she goes, what we're going to do is we're going to yank you down from everything you're doing that you do not have to be doing. And so she yanked me out of church. So between that was in February of 2015. So literally like 10 years after his arrest. And, she, and, and I go, well, I have some obligations with ministry and stuff. And she goes, that's fine. She goes, let him know now. And by like May of 15, like three months later, I sent him, I had sent him a letter, the women's ministry. And I'm like, nope, I'm done. I'm out I'm on a sabbatical to go right and, and take care of myself and therapy. And I literally went from like 30 hours a week of volunteer ministry to nothing. And it's been what, eight years. And I still don't do volunteer ministry. I'm still not back because I felt like God was saying, okay, you're going to go on sabbatical and you're going to write and you're going to go deal with all this. But my one year sabbatical became an eight year, <laughs> like, like being in serving in church. But now it's more like I serve in the world. When, when we talk about like, where's your ministry? It's gone from like ministry and church is really important, but it was like, I felt like I was serving the saved there. And now I'm out here in the world doing insanely crazy stuff. Well, it's incredible just what you said about your counselor who looked at you and said, okay, we're going to have to step away because it seems that your counselor knows that general truth that we cannot give water from an empty well. And even though we may feel like we need to do whatever, serve people, care for people, but oftentimes we have to step back and make sure that our needs are being met. We need to make sure that we're in a safe place and that we're in a place where we can heal. And sometimes certain situations can trigger that and can trigger negative things. And so you take a step back from church, you and your counselor are working together to kind of reorganize things and put things in their proper place so that you can process through your experience and your PTSD. And as you were doing that, it sounds like you started to notice that you thought you were going to be serving women in women's ministries, but now your ministry has shifted. You talked about not necessarily ministering to the saved, but ministering in these new random places. And I've noticed some of the places where you get speaking opportunities, they're true crime conventions and places where you probably wouldn't see like a church potluck in the parking lot, you know, (laughs) places where you can kind of go and be light and talk about your experience, but also connect with people in a really dark atmosphere. It's pretty like dark and light battles over here, like my whole life. So I went, I pulled myself down from ministry. It was crazy. The church actually used my story in 15. They tied me, the pastor tied me to Joseph and his story with his family and forgiveness and being an unlikely hero. And like I ate my life first for a long time, like long before this was Genesis 50, 20. I'm going to butcher it, but about, you know, you intended it for hard, but God has intended it for good. What is happening now to saving of many lives. And that had been my mm-hmm. life first. God had given that to me years before. 
And then the church found out about me. Okay, so I was in one of the churches where as a woman, you weren't allowed to preach on the stage on the weekends, but they let you preach at mops on Thursdays, talks, right? Not preach, but you can talk. So I, I had talked in Bible study with two women and in mops, two women. And so they got, they heard about my talks and then they took all of that and turned it into a whole sermon for 20,000 people over a massive mega church over a weekend and called me an unlikely hero. And it was like this almost mountaintop moment of faith, but it was like, I find when I reach those mountaintop moments, sometimes my life is absolutely in shambles. And Mm. I was absolutely exhausted and God's like, okay, we're, we've got you where we need you. Now we're going to send you, right? And so the church was really confused because they're like, man, we're going to have you in women's ministry. We're going to put you to work because we were pairing me up like with counseling and women in abuse situations already back then. And we like, they wanted, they needed me, right? But I was like, nope, God says it's time to go. And they were arguing with me for about a year. And I, and I literally, we had to leave that church and go to another one and literally hide because I couldn't step foot in that church. People are like, well, you must be sinning because you're not here ministering. And I'm like, no, I was like, it was God literally said, go. And I was like, you want to go argue with God, go ahead. And so like, that's where we, we left that one. And literally what happened then was I ended up writing. It took me four years and I became a national, you know, bestseller and it's full of faith and it's full of everything we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, but what happened was, I don't know, I don't know if God needed me to create in the desert or I made a desert for myself, but I literally was in the spiritual desert from 2015 until about two weeks ago. And in, in, in all that time, we ended up moving to Florida. There was the pandemic, there was a divorce. And so like, you know, maybe the church is like, look, you stepped away. <laughs> but you know, you hear Christians say that like, your, your walk is messy, but I don't know. I'll get home someday to heaven and God will explain it to me, I guess. But I've literally been wandering in the desert as I've, because, you know, it's like you come out of those really safe, secure, evangelical, conservative, like protected spaces, right? And it's almost like you have to blast through those walls to get to the world, right? Like you can be in those spaces and serve the world, but I, it was almost like I had to leave that space to get where I am now. It makes sense to me because I think sometimes we, as Christians, can protect ourselves to the point that we are unable to protect others because we have built a force field around ourselves so that no one can get through. But the problem, when no one can get through, that's one thing, but also no one can get out. And we just become very self-involved, very focused on us over the needs around us and the apparent issues that other people are facing. And so it sounds to me, as you were describing that, you're describing that God is calling you to another ministry, albeit your church wants you to minister there. And they're excited about maybe your voice at the church. But it sounds like you were being called in a different direction, and that was tricky. And it's very easy to kind of look at that from the outside and say, well, look at her life now. Look at these messy situations that have come up. But, you know, anyone who listens to MercyCast, we understand that life is super messy. And oftentimes, it's messiest when you are following Jesus. It's messiest when you are following the call of God. Because 
life doesn't always make sense. And there's pain that so many of us carry that we're just trying to figure out how to manage it, how to understand it, how to process it, how to work through trauma that we've experienced, whether that was childhood trauma or trauma we've experienced in our adolescence into adulthood, whether it's acute or complex, many of our listeners are processing that. But I'll tell you this, the more we process pain and try to understand how God is calling us, just like you said in that verse, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so God is doing this good thing through terrible things that have come in our lives. And when we start realizing that our vulnerability can actually connect us with other vulnerable people and that our pain can point to our purpose. You could tell I used to be a Baptist pastor because I can alliterate all day long. I'm good at it. But when we realize that the things that we don't want to think about in our lives are actually the things that connect us to other people who are in the same boat, it's there where we find our ministry. And it sounds to me like you have done that. And it doesn't look like something that would be on sale at a, a Lifeway Christian bookstore. I, it's, it's, it's like taking both of it. Like I literally, so like in my desert time, so I wrote this book and it's called a serial killer's daughter, but it's my story of faith, love and overcoming. And I have people that, so it took a long time to sell it to like the booksellers, like all the major houses in New York passed on it. Cause they're like, well, we either like the God part, but we don't like the serial killer part. <laughs> Or we like the serial killer part, but we can't, we can't touch God. And I'm like, look, guys, like I'm not editing my life, right? You can emphasize one or the other, but I'm like, I'm not removing God and I can't remove my dad, right? It's all together. It's this insane mess of life, right? That I've somehow survived. Somehow my literary agent who's Jewish, they ended up at Nelson, right? Like conservative Nelson Christian house under Harper Collins. It's the most amazing relationship, right? He's like, I don't even know how we ended up at Nelson. I'm like, I know, like God, after 18 like rejections, we end up over at Nelson. I'm like, I'm literally on the phone with the publisher there. And I had spent a year and a half writing a proposal. And it was that phone call that sold it. Literally just like talking to you is what sold it. And Nelson conservative house stepped in and embraced all of it every last bit because they said you've got to show the dark to contrast the light you have to have them both yes and it's funny because those publishing houses would have taken a story if it was about a serial killer who had delusions of grandeur and had a religious reason for killings they would have eaten that up but in your book you're talking about how you're depending on your faith and you're depending on your heavenly father as you're processing the sins of your earthly one. Right. And I can see how that would be. Actually, I can't. I can't see how people wouldn't want that story to be told because I think it's such a real story. It's such an honest story. And it just showcases the messiness of life because it's very easy for people to see that well, it's very easy to see the victims, but then to not see you and your family as victims as well. And your book really shows that you were. That's part of the reason I started speaking up. And so for 10 years from 05 until 15, I was following my family's rules. We don't speak to the media. 
We don't air our dirty laundry, the Midwest code. We don't talk mm-hmm. about these bad things, right? But the reality is I had grown up in a home with l- multiple layers of abuse, layers of abuse I'm not even on record talking about yet because I literally was just notified of some of the most severe stuff this summer. So I'm processing and dealing with 18 years out, 45 years out, really serious things. Like I'm back in trauma therapy multiple times. I'm in it again right now. So we're talking about coming out of a home with multiple levels of abuse, verbal, emotional, physical, other kinds of abuse, and then being thrust into the spotlight internationally as a family of a serial killer. And one of the big reasons I speak up now and I advocate for all violent crime victims or all crime victims, but I'm advocating specifically for families like mine. So there was a, there was a man arrested in Long Island, New York this summer for as a serial killer. And so I stepped up for his family verbally on the media by the first night. Once I heard that he had a child and he had children, adult, young adult children and a wife, I stepped right in and started speaking on national media. So when I'm going to advocate for families and any crime victim, but you know, there's sort of a ministry here with women. So it's sort of, it's taking that same ministry from church years ago and it's just putting it in the world. So when I was at CrimeCon a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, like I couldn't move more than a few feet without meeting literally almost always women wanting to talk to me, share a little of their story, get an autograph, get a photo. And I was ministering for, I was on my feet 15 hours that Friday at the conference center. I, I literally did 28,000 steps in three days, all inside at a conference center. Like I spoke twice. I spoke to a couple thousand people. But I, I was advocating the whole time I was there. I was meeting with people, their stories, high-profile people, special private meetings with like all these families, very high-profile, but also just face-to-face. And when I was sitting down to do book signings and autographs and we call them meeting greets, I had them bring a chair in and I put people, I had people sit next to me and I tried to give them about two minutes each of me eye-to-eye listening, Right. Because it's just ministering. And I don't honestly think anywhere in that whole weekend, I would have I said, like, I was in a very secular space, right? Of like crime space. I don't think I ever once said the word God or faith that weekend. But that's where it comes from. It's that same contact of, 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 of seeing people and caring for them like where they are. And you're raising your voice so that others can feel that they can speak up as well. You have this platform that you have not run from, though you are taking pains to care for yourself as you're doing it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next few minutes. But it's so wonderful to see that you haven't run from this, but you're actually helping people understand what they've experienced and showing them that they can overcome this, that they can start this process of healing, that they do not always have to be under the thumb of their past or things that were done to them or things that they've done. One of my friends reached out to me right after the Gilgo Beach murders had been made public or after he had been arrested. And one of my friends just texts me and says, hey, have you ever known a serial killer? And I'm like, well, I I would assume so. And my friend's like, yeah, so it looks like I did business with this guy. And he was just at a loss because he had crossed paths with him. He didn't know him well. 
but they might have been on the same Zoom meetings or something at one point. And it just, it really threw him because in that moment, you, you really, you realize that you don't really know people and you don't necessarily know what people are capable of. And I think that is such a critical part of your story is that for you, Dennis was, was dad. Yeah, you don't, you don't really ever know even sometimes who your parents are, you know, and it's hard for people in the public. Like it, it, it feels like betrayal, right? Your friend probably felt betrayed and like that somebody snowed him, like put one mm-hmm. over him. Like you think that you should like, okay, somebody like my father, Rex Hurum, and they do monstrous things, right? But they don't look like a monster. And I, right. I always push, I push back when the public or, you know, the trolls on Twitter, like your dad is a monster. No, he's not a monster. He's my dad. He's Dennis Reader. He's a man. Okay. He's got good and he's got bad. He's got light and he's got dark. He does evil things, but he is not evil, right? I don't like that word evil, right? Because mm-hmm. it almost takes the choice away. I'm like, he's choosing. He's chosen every time he did something. He chose to go be bad. And then he went over there and he was decent, like a good father. And then he chose mm-hmm. to be a bad father. And he, he'll tell you pretty openly about wrestling his demons and wrestling the dark. And he wishes he could be the light. So he's he's been over there for 70 some years wrestling. He's got awful spiritual battles. I don't even I don't even imagine can imagine what it's like to be inside my father. Now, it's no excuse for what he did. He had full control and power over it. And he should have never done it. He should have gone in somewhere before the first murders and said, hey. I need help. I'm about to commit these acts and they could put him in a mental hospital, right? That had happened. I would have never been bored. My brother would have never been born. My children would have never been born. So I'm not really allowed to mentally sit in those places because it becomes a very bad place for me to sit. But we don't, we're missing part of my work and being in, in research on my father, I'm considered an expert on my father. Now I'm working with law enforcement because we're looking at some cold cases with my dad. This massive news stuff is blowing up again around him and my family this this year. Part of why I'm so vocal is to say, look, you're looking for monsters when you need to be looking for everyday normal men that can have families and and can mm. love and have this capacity. Because there's just like technical, like professional, academic definition of psychopath, and we have to completely get rid of that and go, and get into reality, right? And I will get on YouTube and argue with retired FBI profilers and all of these people. I'm not an academic. I only have a bachelor's degree. And some of these people don't even want to talk to me because I don't have all the letters behind my knee. And I'm like, look, I survived this man for 26 years and I'm going into prison now to talk to him. Are you going into prison to talk to him? No. So can you maybe just stop and listen for a second to what I'm having to say? Because... Part of the problem is like the FBI, they have one conversation with me and they've never spoke, the active FBI have never spoken to me since. And I'm working with other law enforcement that do want to want to use my resources, but it's frustrating for families like mine and probably Hurman's family. We're the most knowledgeable people on these guys and nobody talks to us. So, mm. so part of it is that there aren't very many people like me that speak because, because we're trashed in the media, we're trashed by trolls. We have massive security issues. You know, we're traumatized. Like, I should be in a ditch dead. And so a lot of us don't ever talk because it's so much to have to deal with. But I, over like the last 
whatever years, I've just tried to push through it. And we'll talk about it, but it's like, it's that if I hadn't had God that night, I found out about my dad, I wouldn't have survived. I didn't even think I was going to survive that night. And I had God. You mentioned this idea of people just reducing someone to a monster and saying, oh, that person's just a monster. And when they do that, in a real way, they're dehumanizing that person, even though that person has done ridiculously terrible things. I remember being on a radio interview for a sports radio station in New York City. I had just released my book, and they brought me on for this three-hour Q&A thing. And after that, I was like, I will never do another one of these again. Because what happened was people were asking about human trafficking. And I, I mean, I had about an hour's worth of really like clear content. And after that, you know, I was faking it till I made it, you know, and someone asks me a question and they, they basically couch it with this monster motif. They said, you know what? I wish that I could round up all of these monsters and castrate them all, all these people who are trafficking people, and castrate them all. And I said, sir, I, I understand your passion here, and I understand the, the feelings that you're experiencing right now, but I do want to push back a little bit. If you're looking for monsters, you'll never find the people who are exploiting those most vulnerable, because oftentimes they look just like us. They talk just like us. They are in your churches. When I talk to people who have survived human trafficking and we talk about churches, sometimes we have to talk about, okay, what does it look like when you come across someone in the church that is a sex buyer that you've known from a past experience in your life? These are things that people do not want to talk about because they want to see people as all good and all bad. Mm -hmm. Here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. But in reality, Life is way more messy than that. And you can look great and be doing horribly despicable things and just be flying under the radar. Yeah, I think it's a way to reduce them, like you said, to make them non-human and to put them in their box because you can't, if you have to wrap your head around that your neighbor is a murderer or a sex trafficker or, you know, a criminal or an abuser or your person that's sitting next to you taking communion with you, if you have to, if you have to live in that world, you don't function as well. You want to live in an oblivious world, like go to church, go work, go home, have a meal, go to bed. You don't want to live in the world where all this war is going on, or you want to go, well, that's the trafficking is happening over in the third world or the wars are happening over there. And it's not happening across the street. Right. And if you have to make yourself live in reality world, that's something I've had to do. I thought I had this like golden childhood, this great life. And I've had to go back the last 18 years ago. Oh, what the heck? Like, oh my God, you know, and I'm still having to do that because I'm still learning these pieces. Like I have night terrors at night. So I'm screaming at night. Okay. We're still solving that. Like, where does that come from? And what, what did my father do? He literally did stop to me to cause that. Like, we're still over here processing that, but I can live in imaginary world. I'm a writer. I can, I can imagine things to escape. And sometimes we need to do that to protect our brains and ourselves. But part of my healing has been reality world. Like, okay. Yes. Dad is a serial killer. 
Yes, he murdered 10 people. Okay, what are we going to do about it? That's a big, big part of this whole thing for me. Okay, all of this horrible stuff happened. Okay, I, I, you have to make a choice. What are you going to do with this? You can't, I can't go back and change it. I would change it. I wouldn't give it to anybody if I could. I can't. That's not reality, right? So I had to decide in 15, when all this stuff was coming together and falling apart at the same time, I had to decide, what am I going to do with this? And that's when God, God was like, you're going to go right. Because writing will allow me to touch the, those places that like speaking doesn't, therapy doesn't, even faith really can't hit. It was like he, he needed me to write because that was like pulling out shards of glass out of me. And so in my first book, I would reach these points. I wouldn't write them. I wouldn't write them. I wouldn't write them. And then I finally got there. And it was like I pulled a piece of glass out of me. And it was God. It was God that like sent me to therapy. It was God that told me to go right. It was God that sent me into the world. So people are like, just live on the spiritual mountain in church all the time. Okay, no, we can't. He's, he's given us right. mental health professionals. He's given us the FBI. He's given us these, our brains like to go do his work in the world. Absolutely. And you mentioned writing. That can be such an empowering act, right? You are not passive in that. You are active. You are telling the story. You are choosing what can be told and what is not told. You are able to share things that may be hard, but in the sharing of it, it helps you even process it further. Was that your experience as you were writing the book? Yeah, writing, like when you're in therapy, it's hilarious. They'll always tell you to go write stuff and you're like, you're like, I don't want to do homework, but writing gave me a safe place to process. And so it's only, it was only between me and the paper and God. And then it, I allow, it allows you to edit it. So you can go back, you can sharpen it, you can add, you can subtract. So there's this really crazy poetry that came out of me that's like not good. And like nobody has seen it other than maybe my agent. But it, like, right, it just it gives you a place to funnel some of this. I'm, I'm like kind of a talking anxious person if I don't settle myself down. And it gives me a place to take all this and put it somewhere and communicate it. Because I'm constantly wanting to be in communication, either with people or now in media. I'm just, I'm a bored communicator. But, but there's times that you can't, I, like, I'm literally gagged right now. There's a bunch of stuff I can't talk about. And so for me to be able to communicate it, now it goes in my journal, right? And it'll, it'll probably be another book someday. So. It just, it gives me a place to go put stuff, even if, I, even if you never publish it. You don't have to keep ruminating. You don't have to keep it replaying on a loop over and over in your head. You can actually put it in a drawer, so to speak. Put it mm-hmm. on paper, put it in a drawer, and now you know it's there. Or you so can you set can fire to it, too. <laughs> if you have one, like, like, like journals and stuff, like sometimes it just helps to get it out. I keep a digital journal. That's a tool I use now. I use like, I keep an Evernote. Evernote is constantly never ending digital private journal. Okay. I've been doing that for nine years. That's one thing I do, but I literally will delete some stuff, but some people will handwrite. Like sometimes handwriting really helps you get it out and then you can process it and then you can just set it on fire. <laughs> It's it's interesting that you say that because I'm the same way. When I went on the Camino de Santiago in April, there were a couple of things that I wanted to leave behind in Spain, some things that I'd been processing, some things that had been on the loop. And what I've noticed was I was like, I'm going to leave this here. So I, I wrote down things. I would take things out of my journal, 
write it down, rip it out. And one thing I put under a boulder, like I'm on this random hill, you know, in this Spanish city and I'm pushing up a boulder and I'm putting this under it because I'm like, no one will find this. It is done. Because also, you know, there had been some fires there and people were like, don't set fire to Spain. But then there was one thing that I did burn. And there's something about having that that Viking funeral, so to speak, for things that you've been carrying for too long. And I do believe it can be cathartic. I do believe it can be helpful. And it is a symbol. It is, you are symbolically letting go of this. You can't reach back into the fire and grab it. I mean, I guess you could, but it's probably not wise. So you're parting with that. And yeah, it sounds that even if you are under a gag order and you can't speak to something publicly, you're able to put that down on paper, hide it, burn it, put it under a boulder if you so choose, and move forward. Like a lot of times we don't have to let people in to all of that mess. Like sometimes it's just for us or between us and God, or maybe like, right. you know, we might share it with somebody, but you know, there's times where there's like that calling. And I knew, I knew it was clear from God, like, you're going to go write this story and tell it, and you're going to, you're going to make sure you tell it with me and mine and the truth, the full truth, right? The, the, the ugly, the good, the faith, the dark, the doubt, all of that, you're going to go put that because it needs other people need it, right? Like, I didn't understand that. So when I started speaking up in 14, I was just trying to get some stuff out and I was upset and angry and just done. I was just done with being quiet. Like I said over and over since then, it was like I was rotting inside. Like I looked, people would say, you look better before you started talking. Yeah, sure. I look better externally. I was married. I was in ministry, right? I was I was crossing the T's. I looked I looked exactly like a conservative Christian needed to look. And then I blew up to the world and then life got extremely messy. But it was real. It was like I was yeah. dying inside suffering, not being able to get it out. But then once I got it out, all these people started coming to me and that's where the ministry came that I wasn't expecting. Like war veterans, people with PTSD, domestic abuse victims, people with criminals in their life, people that needed to forgive somebody, somebody that had done something bad. All these people kept coming to me. It was the world, right? And it was coming to me in like in mass. And that was where I had to decide what am I going to do with this and how do I minister to this like mass? And that's where I'm at now, even though it is still extremely messy. And the thing about your story is that it is real and it connects with people. And many who've gone through really any hard times in their lives can connect in different ways with what you have written. As I was reading your book, I was stunned when I realized that our fathers were in Vietnam or around Vietnam. We both know that they weren't always in Vietnam during that time, but they did the exact same kind of work, worked for the same crew. And kind of blew my mind. I was like, our fathers may have crossed paths during that time, but it also helped me see things because you were raised by someone who fought in that war or was there in that war as I was. And and that that can be a different type of childhood. You know, it's like when your parents have been there and even if because I don't think either of our fathers, they were both in the Air Force. I don't think either of them actually saw conflict, but there was a lot of things that came with it. And so things that they probably brought home. And so when I read that, I was like, wow, it became very real to me. And 
I've been wondering, how have you been able to separate your story from that of your father? Going back to the whole father thing, it's, we, we were talking about that earlier. It's been so hard for me to have stuff my father got, or God is a good father, a heavenly father, a loving father, right? I've really pushed back on that. So my faith journey was, I, I grew up Lutheran, like stand up, sit down, seeing, you know, and I had to do confirmation, even though I did want to. And then I walked from God in high school, or I was rebelling for a while. My family was making me go to church. And so here's my father. He's committed these 10 murders by then. And he forced me to go to church every weekend and dress up and look pious and responsible. And he's in his suit. But he never had a living, acting relationship with God. I still do not believe he ever has or possibly ever will. He, he could. He could accept Christ and be in heaven. And that's something I've, I've said for years, and I get massive pushback on it. But I'm like, look, Jesus died on the cross for everybody. So my father can accept Christ. But so I, was, I like back then, it was just this very pious thing I felt like I had to do. And then I turned in my book, there's a whole story about being in the Grand Canyon and almost dying. And I was down there with my father, I was 19. And I came to Christ down there. That's where it came to Christ. And I literally made a deal with God. And I was like, like, maybe don't make deals with God because I'm down there in the rocks. And I'm like, if you can get me out, I, I'll give you my legs. This is yeah. 97. So this is eight years before the man sleeping next to me is arrested. Of course, God knows all this, right? And I literally, like, he drags my butt through the rest of the canyon. My dad does. God does. I get out of the canyon. I've got, like, a sprained foot, a shoe falling apart. I literally don't even get that second foot down. And God hits me in my head. And he's like, you're mine. Like, it's done. And I, and I was like, oh, crap. I knew then my whole life had altered. And from that point forth, I started building my my actual living, walking faith with God. And so, like with college, that's where my my husband at the time came in. Everybody in my life came in. And so I had built this really, what felt like a pretty strong faith for eight years. God had built himself up into me. And so then when that hit, the FBI hit, and my dad's arrest hit, like that first night, I didn't think I was going to survive. And like Psalm 23 came to me. I'm terrible with scripture memorization, but like even though I walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you know, you're on your staff or beside me. That was, that's what got me through that first night. And then the next morning, a little bit more of it got me through. And then I started saying like, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? And I just kept saying that over and over. And I swear to God, that might be in the Bible or it might be like me taking three Psalms and putting them together. But it was just like walking with God very slowly. Like I was angry. I was mad at him. I was torn up. I didn't understand. I was angry and torn up with my father. But it was like, you're, we were talking about overcoming. It was just these little, little tiny steps of getting up, choosing every morning, even if it sucks, even if it's God awful, what's the next step, right? We're talking about tools mm -hmm. too for people. What is the next thing I need to do? I might be this far out and I still might be sitting ruminating and depressed and not well. And I have to make that decision. Okay, what's the next thing I need to go do? Maybe it's just dishes. And at least it gets me moving. So there's been like this active walk of sticking with God and choosing him, knowing that he's never left me, even if I've been off in the desert wandering. So for, for years after I, I, I embedded with God to write, I like 
at that somewhere in there, we left the church. I was in Florida. I wasn't in church for years during the pandemic. I was down in the bad places, just wrestling with everything, divorce, COVID, really bad COVID, just all of this God awful stuff. And I wasn't holding on to where I needed to be, which was God. And then in February of this year, on the anniversary, the 18th anniversary, I was having really bad PTSD always do on the anniversary. And it was that same thing, that same voice from the canyon, like smack me on the head. It's like, okay, time for you to go back to church. And I was like, what? And he's like, no, today you're going back to church today. (laughs) And you're like, okay, so you know, you probably know just like me, when you've walked long enough, you don't argue with it, right? Because if you argue with it, it's going to get even more complicated and painful in your life, right? It's going to get like, he's going to like keep like letting you, not that he's doing it, but he will let you just like flounder in the mud until you're willing to accept God's sovereignty. And I was like, okay, yes, okay, I'll go to church. And I want to go on Saturday night. And I Googled where are churches on Saturday night in Orlando. And now I have a church home. So I've been there. I've been going pretty often since February. And I like dragged a kid. It was like 15 in therapy. Like get to this point where I'm so like broken and I'm still so stubborn. I just won't give it up. And I'm like, I dragged my butt into church. And I was going to serve right away because that's what we do in church, right? We serve. And so I go to like try to serve and the pastor meets me at this new person night. I just look God awful in April. And he's like, you're not well. And I told you a little bit of my story. And I was like, I'm trying to serve. And he's like, no, you're not serving now. Stop. You're not serving. He's like, you're coming at least for six months just to rest here. And I was like Mm. sobbing at that point because no pastor had ever just told me I could come Mm. rest in their church. So I'm resting now in church and enjoying worship and communion. I hadn't done communion in like eight years. So like when I went back to do communion, I was like, it was like I got knocked over. So I don't know, like maybe if I'd been doing communion for eight years, we wouldn't be here. But I, I I don't have the answers for that. So, (laughs) I think it's such a beautiful thing, though, because my pastors at my church said a very similar thing to me. They're like, we have zero expectations of you. We just want you to come. You don't even have to give right now. Just be here. Yeah. Soak it up. Get to know people. Connect with people. And there is a beauty in having that season of healing with you dealing with just the reality that so many people want to avoid. How do you get away? How do you take care of yourself so that you can come back and re-engage? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. So, like, things were pretty quiet up until a year ago. I I had moved out. I was writing and working on my second book called Breaking Free. It's a lot about trauma and marriage and divorce and what trauma does to these families and implodes it and faith and all, all this mess I've been talking about. It's about all the mess. I had it like halfway done and then that Hurricane Ian hit here. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I was inland, but I wrote the thing out on my own. And I, I live off a lake and it was like that wind was screaming for like two or three days nonstop. And I, I had never been through a hurricane. And something, something happened during that hurricane to me. I, sh- I shouldn't have probably wrote it out alone, but I think God wanted me to. Because it was, I ended up with like acute stress disorder after that hurricane, but it was like something massively shifted. 
without Hurricane in me. Like, it was just like Rue was spiritual land for like two days without Hurricane in my little place. And after, right after that, Idaho 4 happened, um, the four murders of the college kids in Idaho. And, and then I got involved in that. And then in January, I got involved in media because of it and my father. And then I found out my father was being looked at in other cases. And it was like my whole life just exploded like since, since, since the hurricane for a year. And that was where I, I was suffering really bad by February. And that's when God was like, no, you got to go back to church. You got to go back and get like those foundations. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it's, it's, I'm so stubborn and so strong willed. It takes almost absolute like devastation to get me to that breaking point of like, he almost has to break me to get me back home. Like it shouldn't be that way. I've been walking forever, but he's, it's, it's just, just like, no, I I'm understand like this, it. I, I'm like the stubborn mule and he's like, okay, we're going to, you're, you're going to have to, you're going to be on this path until you get to that point of knowing you need to come back home. Like, and not just like be walking in your head, but walking in like the body and doing things like communion. And so like, I have been struggling this whole year with media and people and masses and they mean well, but it's God is hard because everybody comes to me. Everybody comes to me for things. And so after CrimeCon, I was literally exhausted. And and he's like, nope, you're done. And so between everything going on, like I said no to media, I said no to people, I left social media for a little bit and I went back to the basics. So I went back to like, you know, devotionals. So Oswald Chambers, like my devotional, I've been in 24 years, I went back to it. You know, I, I'm picking up that Morris News study on Philippians. Like I just went back to my roots. I've got my old NIV and then I'm going to church. And I, I literally just wrote on Instagram. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to survive this and not be in a funny farm, I'm going to have to hit all of this. We got to hit this darkness of my father with blinding light. And, and so now I'm back. You're asking things I do for self-care. Literally now I'm just rooting myself back into a place of sleeping, eating, you know, not communicating like communicating internally using this energy to work and and do work for law enforcement and do Bible study. But I'm trying to rewire myself so that I start with God in the morning. So maybe if I, if I start really grounding myself in God, maybe I will remember in six months or two years and not fall flat on my face, which I'm sure I still will do. But that idea of grounding yourself is so key. And I think that is something that's important for any of us who are processing life, that we do need to be grounded in something else. As Christians, we're, we're grounded in who God is for us. We're grounded in scripture. We're, we should be grounded in community. What are some pieces of advice that you could give us as we're trying to process and overcome our past and things that have happened in our lives? First off is you, you have to realize you're like, I know, I know people will say this, but you have to realize you're stronger than you think you are. And so you have to, you have to understand you can survive whatever it is. I, I don't know what it is, whatever it is, you can survive. And I literally still have to tell myself that because I'll get to the really dark places even now. And, and I know I, I will not have that hope or that belief, but I have enough of my toolbox in place that I know, okay, this is going to pass right? This is just a feeling. I'm not allowed to make decisions on feelings. So 
for me, literally, it might just mean I got to go take a nap. Or when was the last time I ate? Or when was the last time I drank some water? I mean, sometimes it's as simple as I need a nap to reset my brain, or I need to eat, or I need to go take a walk, or I need to call somebody, or I need some time with God. It's just figuring out in that moment, listening to yourself and what you need, and then taking care of yourself. It's really hard for me at times because I live alone mainly now. I have to adult, right? I don't have another adult to adult Mm -hmm. for me. I don't have anybody to cook for me or clean or remind me to go to bed or tell me to get up. And I was never parented very well. And so therapist right now, he's like, you've been having to parent yourself for 45 years and you're exhausted. And so it's learning like to be an adult. I'm learning right now to, to, to go, okay, I need to go to bed or I need to be at this appointment. So it's, it's becoming self-aware and making those choices. Another thing is therapy. Like you need to get into therapy. I would say everybody in the whole world needs therapy. And a lot of us need trauma therapy. It's a special kind of therapy. And so if you don't know what kind of therapy you need, talk to somebody, take a screener or something. But therapy is one of the things that saved my life. And it's yeah. God that sent me there. And I think sometimes as Christians, we have a tendency to push back and go, okay, we, we just need God. We just need the word. But he's given us these tools. He's given us doctors and medicines and and law enforcement and therapists to help us. So maybe we can survive just on scripture, but I I feel like he's saying, go, go use the tools that are given to you. And I, I guess for me, mentally now in the last year, I'm I'm learning to anchor and be present. So instead of instead of when that trauma triggers and I want to go back to 05 and loop to the really bad days, I'll, I'll anchor. So like one very simple thing I've learned is to anchor to present. And so nature helps me, but like you stop, you find three things that are visual, two things you can hear, um, one thing you can touch. So literally, if I need to go anchor, I'll I'll go stand outside and I'll find three visual things like trees, water, sky. Then I'll listen for those things. And then usually I'll fill the ground and then I am more present. Even just talking to you in that moment, I've anchored myself back and now I'm calmer. So like mm. at CrimeCon, I have people coming to me for like mental health advice. And they're like, we're really anxious after talking to you. And I literally did that little anchoring exercise with these women at CrimeCon. And it was like this really powerful little intimate moment of applying something that helps me and they instantly benefited from it. So like. It's, a, it's to me, it's just about like learning to be present, knowing you're stronger than you think you are, asking for help. That's huge. You actually have to go get asked for help. You can't just expect someone to come help you. You're going to have to go be self advocating, which is new for me. And then just keep going. Right. And like now I'm in over, I'm not allowed to be judgmental of myself. I'm not allowed to be over, I'm not allowed to be hard on myself. So it's, it's just, it's just learning when we talk about self-care, it's about learning to love yourself first. Like you said earlier, you can't go take care of the world and everything else if you're not taking care of yourself first. And that piece about being present is so important because I think when we're learning the art of presence and being present in that moment, we don't have time to ruminate and we don't have time to worry about the future. We're just focused and grounded and anchored, as you said, in that moment. And I think that is so helpful and such a great reminder 
Carrie, thank you so much for being on the Mercy Cast this week. Thanks so much for having me. If you are interested in more stories like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. Also, if you want bonus content, you can click on the link in the show notes to access our new and improved weekly bonus podcast, More Mercy, where I dive deeper into each episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. I want to hear from you. You can email me at info at mercycast.com. This podcast is brought to you by Let My People Go. To learn more about how you can love your most vulnerable neighbors through your own vulnerability, go to lmpg.org. Till next time, have mercy on yourselves and each other.